What is the connection between idolatry and adultery? Why is Ezekiel so explicit and even crude at times? And what's the most logical response to getting saved? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, and I am not a farmer. Now, I very easily could have been a farmer. I think I even could have had a happy life as a farmer. But as it happens, I'm not a farmer. I could have pretty easily been a farmer because. I grew up on a farm. My parents were farmers. My dad worked hard on a farm all of my life. He still does. His father was a farmer. And his father's father was a farmer. On my mom's side, her father was a farmer. And her father's father was a farmer. Now, beyond that, I have no idea. It could have just been more farmers as you go down the family tree. I don't even know. But it wouldn't surprise me. And my family's story is a story of farmers. Now, as I said, I am not a farmer, but with that kind of history on both sides of my family, I could have very easily become one. It wouldn't have been surprising at all. It almost seemed predestined that I would become a farmer. But here I am instead recording a podcast without a cow in sight. If my life was a story, it might have looked like I was heading to a farm or or staying on the farm. It, It must have been quite a plot twist when it swerved into ministry and media and the stuff that I'm doing now. But it was indeed a story. We all have a story, and that story is where we get our identities from. If your identity is that you're a Christian, and somebody asks you why or how you became a Christian, you'd probably answer them with a story. If someone asked you why you were a doctor or a teacher or whatever your job title is, you'd probably have a story for that too. We view our histories as stories, and this shapes how we see ourselves. It's amazing how our personal history can shape our identities. We think of ourselves as the outcome of all the experiences that we've had up to this moment right now. We see our lives as stories, and the me that you're dealing with today is the sum total of all of the history that I've gone through up until now. And this is how we forge our identities. It is not only our history, it's also our perception of our history that shapes our identity. Say you had a childhood full of illnesses and maladies, you were sick for a large portion of your childhood. Now, if you had a positive outlook on it, you could say, look at all that I overcame. I am a victor. I'm not a victim. Or someone could look at that really pessimistically, saying that they had their childhood stolen from them, never getting over the fact that they just never had a chance, that they were set too far back in life to ever catch up to everyone else. And they might go through this world always carrying a chip on their shoulder. You see, it's not just our history. It's our perception of our history that shapes our identity. How you interpret your history determines what kind of story that you tell about yourself. Today, we're going to look at Israel's story, Israel's history. What brought them from their origins as Abraham's children all the way up to Ezekiel 16? And that's where we're going to find ourselves today. Israel has a perception of their history, but God has an alternative 
perception. So the same history, but a different point of view on it. And so God is going to give Israel his retelling of their story in chapter 16 of this book. And this is a massive chapter of Ezekiel. I think it's going to take me two lessons to get through it, which is actually a surprise considering how slow I usually go through Ezekiel. Um, But we're going to cover a lot of ground today. I think we're going to cover more verses in one lesson than I ever have before. And and the reason is because, as I keep saying, this is a story. And so I didn't want to break it up. Um, It wouldn't have been as easy to understand if I broke it up into little pieces before we get to the conclusion. So this chapter of Ezekiel, It's a big, long story. This one chapter alone is 63 verses. This one chapter alone, it has more words than six of the 12 minor prophets. So it's a chapter of Ezekiel that's longer than a lot of entire books of the Bible. So I hope you appreciate the fact that I'm actually going to fly through 43 verses of it all in today's lesson. I think it'll be a long, it's going to be a big lesson, but I think you'll appreciate that we're getting through so much of it all at once. One more note that you need to know on this chapter, this lesson is going to be rated R, okay? I can't believe I'm doing a Bible study that has to have an R rating. Um, well, okay, I'm, actually, I'm not that surprised. I, I've said it for years. If somebody made an honest like movie out of the Bible, it would definitely be rated R, like by far, for every reason you can find, except for bad language. But I mean, for any other reason a movie would get rated R, the Bible has it. And I would even say... Some of the most seasoned Bible readers out there might still be shocked at some of the things that this chapter says, Uh, especially when you slow down and take a look at them and kind of pick it apart, which is what we're going to do today. If you have any kids around, they're going to have a lot of questions for you about what some of these things mean. So I would say just pause it and wait and listen to it whenever you're not around them. I'm not even kidding when I say that. Like this chapter is just not going to be appropriate for kids. A lot of it is not even appropriate for adults. <laughs> some of the some of the commentaries that I've read when studying this chapter, they describe it as literally pornographic. Now, I don't feel comfortable using that word about anything in the Bible, but I'm just letting you know what you're in for. I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate anything about this to draw in listeners. I'm actually telling you don't listen to this, like if you have a problem with that or if you have kids around, okay? Just consider yourself warned. And uh, let's not drag out this intro anymore because we still have a lot ahead of us. Grab your Bible. Let's check into chapter 16 of Ezekiel. This is easily going to be the most verses I've ever read in one of our Ezekiel studies, like I said before. I mean, we've had sections where I just covered like five verses before, okay? I usually do 10 to 12 verses. But again, today I'm going to try to get through 43 verses. So I'm saying that to to say, just bear with me if I read longer chunks at a time than I usually do, um, because that's, that's what it's going to take for us to get through this today. So I'll be in the English Standard Version, the ESV, which is what I usually do for these lessons. And so this chapter, again, it's God's retelling of Israel's history, and he retells it as a parable. As you know, Jesus often liked to use parables, and Jesus was God. And so we shouldn't be surprised that God also likes to tell parables. And right here in this chapter, he gives Israel's history as a parable of an adulterous wife. So this is Israel's history, but it's also, um, what to them, they'd call it a revisionist history. Uh, Israel has a little bit more of a cavalier attitude about themselves 
than what God thinks. So he's going to set the record straight today. Ezekiel 16, verses 1 through 5. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swallowing cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. So the story begins at the beginning. This parable is, it's overall, it's going to be, you know, as you saw in the title, this is going to be about the parable of the adulterous wife or Israel as the adulterous wife. But, but it starts with Israel's origins. And so Israel's origins are represented in the story by the birth of a baby. God says he found this baby abandoned in a field. Nobody was taking care of it. It came from Gentile parentage. And, and that's, you know, basically true if you think of Abraham. And as far back as, um, as far as that line about the mother and the father, they were an Amorite and a Hittite, that's going to come up toward the end of the chapter, which we're probably going to get into next time. So I won't comment on that today. The baby was dirty and abandoned in the field. Nobody was caring for it. Nobody wanted it. I mean, it could have died out there and it just never would have been thought of again. Like you'd never be hearing or reading about it today. But God saw that life. He saw value in it and he wanted it to thrive. God saw what could be and not just what was. And God had compassion when nobody on earth had compassion. And God saved this child. The Jewish people, they were always lesser than their enemies, like lesser in number, lesser in military power. Like They couldn't make a dent in anything without God's help. And time and time again, they were almost wiped out. They went down to Egypt before long they were slaves. They could have been wiped out at, at any time that Pharaoh wanted to give the order. And God always rescued them. Every time God brought them through and they grew. So I'm going to read a big chunk of verses ahead. I'm going to read all the way to verse 14. But God's talking through this about all the blessings that he lavished on Israel to help it to grow. And he's using the metaphors here of rings and jewelry and beautiful clothing as he talks about this. So starting at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Okay, that was a, that was a big chunk of verses there. 
It says this baby grew into a, a young woman. She became very beautiful. And this is speaking of Israel's beauty as she matured as a nation and, and became very prosperous and blessed and protected by God. In the parable, God said that he rescued this baby. He cleaned it up. He helped it to grow. God set this baby up for success. God gave it a good life. In the parable, it said God put ornaments and bracelets on the young woman as she grew and matured. It speaks of fine clothing and rings. It said something there. Um, <laughs> this might even annoy some people that I'm bringing it up. Uh, <laughs> personally, I'm not a big fan of nose rings. Um, like, I don't think they really make anyone look more attractive for getting one. But right here, it does stick out to me that God speaks of a nose ring as a beautiful adornment. Uh, and he uses it as a metaphor, of course, for a blessing that he gives to the nation. So, you know, I just I just throw that out there. Uh, I'm not a fan of the nose ring thing, but some people say it's sinful. I would just point out to them, if anyone says getting a nose ring is sinful, the Bible actually indicates otherwise. I'm, I'm not advising you to go get one. I'm not a fan of it, but I'm just wanting to be fair here. So I'll mention it. Um, I actually remember having this conversation with someone, someone who was an older Christian. This was like 10 or 11 years ago. And she was, um, she was saying something about how it's wrong for girls to get nose rings because that was starting to become a, a popular thing back when I was in college. And I pointed out that I had actually read somewhere in the Bible that God was speaking about a nose ring as a blessing. And so I don't, I don't remember where I'd read that. It was probably, it must've been here in Ezekiel. I don't know if it's anywhere else in the Bible. So I think it must've been here. And I just kind of remembered that story as I was studying this here. So um, back when I was like, that, this was when I was in college. I didn't realize this. If I was reading about this story, I didn't even realize it was a parable. But that that's kind of beside the point. God uses this as a metaphor here for all the blessings that he lavished on Israel. That's what the jewelry, that's what the clothing represents. <clears throat> I'm guessing this refers to the prosperity that Israel enjoyed as it grew into a powerful nation back in ancient times. You know, like I said before, it was not a massive people in number. But they were always so successful in what they tried to do, like when they had to fight off their enemies. They were always successful at that. Well, not always, but I mean, when they were, which was most of the time, they that was attributed to God's hand. When they lost, it was because usually they, they had lost favor with God for some reason. And so God says he put this jewelry and this clothing on them. He took care of them. What brought on the clothing? Well, it said as the child grew into a young woman. In the parable, it says that she reached um, the age for love. That refers to sexual maturity. So now the clothing is covering her her lady parts, okay? It's helping her to remain pure. And this is because God taught Israel how to be pure, how to be holy. And that's represented in the parable here by giving giving her modesty. God gave, God gave them the commandments. He, he taught them how to be a holy people. Now, it gets a little weird, you know, in this story. I get it. But um, in verse 8, God speaks of entering into a marital union with the beautiful young woman who was represented, of course, uh, representing Israel. It said in verse 8, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So when he says that there, this is covenant language. In the metaphor, um, it sounds like marital language. In historical terms, though, in regard to what the metaphor means, I believe it's talking there about the Mosaic Covenant, that after God brought Israel out of Egypt, God gave Moses a series of laws to write down. It starts in Exodus with the Ten Commandments, and then it goes on through you know, pretty much all of Leviticus, uh, some of Numbers, a lot of Deuteronomy, 
And so in recounting this history, I think this is what the covenant is speaking of. After that, they set out in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, which, again, that's covered by numbers uh, pretty much all through there. Deuteronomy recaps their history and the law. So the first five books of the Bible are often called the law. It's the covenant that God made with Israel. And of course, right in the middle there, it's that book of Leviticus. That's the thickest with the law. It's, I mean, it's like 27 chapters straight of law. It says, if you do this, Israel, I'll do that. But if you don't do this, then I'm going to do something else instead. And the book of Ezekiel, it refers back to this stuff in Leviticus quite a bit because Israel has violated the terms of the covenant that God set up with them, their, the law. Israel has not held up its end of the deal. And so we're going to get to that part of the story in a minute, but let me just go back to verse six again. I love verse six because verse six, it reminds me of the gospel. Let me read this again. It says, and when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I just love reading that because it just reminds me of the gospel that we were essentially dead in our sins. We were covered in filth. There was nothing we could do for ourselves. We were doomed. We had no more hope for survival, no more hope than a, than a baby who had been abandoned in a field. And then God came down to us and he said to us, live. God saved us. It wasn't anything that we did. God saved us. And this abandoned baby was not abandoned anymore. And that's honestly, that's the last glimmer of light that you're going to see for a while. <laughs> this, this parable, it takes a dark turn pretty soon. Let me go back to verse 15 here, or start at verse 15. It says, But you trusted in your beauty, and played the whore because of your renown, and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. And with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. So let me pause there for a moment, because as I type all these verses into my notes, it tells me that the word whorings is misspelled that it, or, or that it's not even a real word. Um, but it is a word. It's just a word that we don't see very much anymore. We especially don't expect to see it in the Bible. It's not a word that sounds very nice. It kind of sounds improper. And yet, words like whore and whorings, they're thrown around kind of regularly in the scripture. It depends on what translation you're reading. Um, if you were reading this in the original Hebrew, you'd see the word zana used repeatedly. Like that would clearly be the word of the day for the verses on on this section. If we were if we were reading this in the original language, the word of the day is zana. It's a graphic word. It means to have sex with. But it's just one word. We don't really have a word in English that means to have sex with other than 
words that are considered dirty words, filthy words, crude speech, profanity. It's a strong word is what I'm saying. It's, an, it's a word that you would not use in polite society. And yet it's all over the place in this chapter. It's used 21 times in this chapter to describe Israel's adultery. It says quite plainly that the young woman who God had rescued and blessed and entered into a covenant with, that she is now Xanaing. She's having sex with all kinds of guys. Any passerby, God says. And then God says, not only did you Xana to, well, not only did you have sex with random guys, you built male statues and you Xanaed them. You know, there's there's some English words I could think of to stick in there, but um, I'm not going to try to be crude today. You know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to toe the line here of how I can communicate what the Bible is actually saying literally without going over the top. But it said Israel, this woman, she's accused here of building statues, and it specifically says male statues, and that she's Xanaing the statues. It means she's building she's building statues of, of male genitalia. I would more likely statues of men that include genitalia, and then that the woman used the statues for sexual purposes. So this is a graphic, gross, visual image that God is presenting right here because he's trying to communicate the grossness of Israel's infidelity to God. Because to God, idolatry is adultery. That's whenever we make other things more important than God. Whether we're talking about literal idol worship or more common to us today, um, what we might say is materialism, when we take things and make them more important than God. Well, whenever we do that, it's like we're cheating on God. God is supposed to be our divine husband. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be in covenant with God, the, the bride of Christ, as we say in the New Testament, that he has died for, your, for our sins. He has rescued you. He's rescued you from eternal damnation. And so, in response, we should put God first. I like how they put it in Romans 12, 1. Um, in, in, the, in the New King James Version and some other versions, they say it like this. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. And then it includes this line at the end, which is your reasonable service. service. It says that's your reasonable ser- service. I like that it says reasonable right there. Some translations will say this is your spiritual act of service or spiritual act of worship, but that's not quite as literal as what it what it's actually saying there. It's our reasonable service. We should offer ourselves to God. That means be willing to sacrifice anything for God and that that is a reasonable service or a reasonable type of worship of God. It's just reasonable. It's just logical. It's only proper in response to all that God has done for us that that's what we would then do for him. It says, therefore, in Romans 12, 1, that therefore is really important. It says, therefore, in light of all that God has done for us by sending Jesus, by dying for our sins, in light of the whole gospel, therefore, it's only logical that we should be just be willing to give up anything for him, to always put him first. That would be the logical response to being saved. So idolatry, that is putting other things before God. And it's grossly immoral because whenever we do that, we're forgetting all that God has done for us. So to recap some of the verses that we just read in Ezekiel, verse 15, it said, 
you played the whore because of your renown. That means Israel looked at all that it had, all that it was blessed with, and it became prideful. She said, oh, well, I got all this on my own. And God says, no, you had that beauty because I blessed you. I did that for you. Sometimes the danger in being blessed by God is that we start to get prideful about our blessings. We think that we earned them ourselves. We think, wow, look at what I did. Look at what I can do. We come to think of our own talents or aptitudes as things that make us great or praiseworthy instead of remembering that they're gifts from God. It later says that Israel gave the garments and the oil and the incense to her idols. And this is probably corresponding to to how Israel was using God's temple by this time. If you rem- if you remember from past lessons, God had given Israel the plans for this place of worship. It included embroidered cloths and oils and incense. But as we've seen from previous chapters in Ezekiel, Israel is using these things to worship false gods now. They've taken worship that was meant for the Lord in God's own house, the way that God wanted to be worshiped, and they have redirected that worship to false deities. And I read that, I'm kind of like, man, that just sounds literally demonic. That just sounds like to, to, to go into God's house or to take spiritual things that were God's ideas and then to pervert them. I mean, that's what Satan does all the time. He doesn't create new things. Satan just corrupts the things that God has done. Satan tries to steal. So I read this and I think, man, what Israel's been doing with God's stuff, I mean, it's downright demonic. But yet that's not what God says right here. God's not blaming the demons. God doesn't let Israel off the hook and say, well, the devil made you do this, obviously. You know, I'm sure it was demonic in nature. It was demonic. But it was Israel's own choice to behave that way. See, they had a choice whether they could follow God or if they wanted to follow the demons. We can't ever just blame the devil or the demons for our decisions. Because the devil's always out there, no matter who you are. He's always trying to get you off the right path. He's always trying to derail our lives. But regardless, it's going to be our own decision about who we want to follow. We can't blame the devil. And God doesn't give Israel any opportunity to shift the blame right here either. And as we come to verse 20, it started mentioning the children. It said, you even took the children and sacrificed them to the idols. I mean, that's some sick stuff right there. That's something that Israel literally did. If you look at the darkest days of Israel's history, they sacrificed their children to Molech. Like I was just reading in Leviticus 18 and 20 a few days ago. And those are the chapters over there in Leviticus where God gave all of those sexual rules in the Old Testament. It would say, you like, you know, this type of sex is forbidden and that kind of sex is forbidden. I mean, I've already rated the lesson R today, so I, I guess I can be a little more specific. I'll just tell you, you know, those are the chapters where it outlaws incest and adultery, bestiality. Um, basically, it, it says in those chapters, only sex between married people, between a married man and a woman, that's the only kind of sex that's allowed. Any other kind of sex is not. And yet, right in the middle of all these sexual rules, it includes a line there about sacrificing children to idols. And every time I've ever ever read those chapters, you know, I just always kind of wonder why that's in there. Like, why is the admonition 
against sacrificing your children? Why is it right there in the middle of all the sexual rules? Like it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure I agree with it. It's a good rule. It just feels like a little bit off topic. Like it should have been stuck somewhere else. It's okay. I agree with the rule, but it always feels kind of out of place in this chapter. That's about a bunch of other things. But as I'm thinking about it now, I, I feel like we can actually kind of see a link between sexual promiscuity and the destruction of children. If you look at America's story, that we had the sexual revolution in the 1960s, and after that, there was an explosion of abortion in this country. And abortion is just a modern form of child sacrifice. It's killing a child because you've got something else that's more important to you. And taking care of this child that you created, it would get in the way of that. And then in this country, as it's become more debased, more perverse, as gay marriage was legalized in 2015 in this country, across the board, we now see pedophilia being normalized more and more every day in this culture. And so it actually makes better sense to me now that as God is saying, This is how you are to use and not use sex. That God would also say, and by the way, treat the kids right. Because as Israel was becoming more and more morally debased, sexually debased, it started more and more to mistreat the children, sacrificing them to idols. And for God, when you go after the kids, a lot of times that's the last straw for for a country. That's what God said to Israel right here. He said, sacrificing the children, that's made God say, enough is enough. I'm going to wipe you all out now. God does not like it when we use and go after the kids. Let me tell you what Jesus said. And you got to remember, Jesus was 100% love. Perfect man. And he said, if you try and corrupt any of these kids... It would be better for you if someone tied a heavy rock around your neck and dropped you in a river. Now, that's pretty harsh. I mean, I think it's fair. And when you look around at this culture, like Balenciaga, it's this fashion company. I've never heard of them before, but I've heard of them now. They're in the news. I'm, I'm recording this here in the first part of December. And when you see the stuff that they're doing with kids, when you see the when you see the backlash in Florida over the law that they introduced this year, saying that you can't sexually indoctrinate kids before third grade. And there was a bunch of people who got upset about that, that that you they actually got upset that they can't teach sex ed to first graders. And that's why we call them groomers, by the way. Whenever you see some of the, like the LGBT content that they're trying to put in a lot of these kids shows nowadays, kids shows, when you see the, the drag queen story hours taking place at libraries and school assemblies all over the country, when you see parents taking their kids to to gay bars to see all-ages drag shows and to try to corrupt the children, when you see all that, I'm like, throw these people in the deepest part of the ocean. Okay, I can tell you exactly what Jesus would be saying. If he were here, Matthew 18, 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's what Jesus says. 
So sorry if you think that I'm unchristlike. <laughs> if I quote Jesus to you, don't tell me that it's unchristlike. I mean, these groomers and these pedophiles, they, they may never face justice for what they're doing on this earth, but they are going to meet a God someday who remembers. Going after the kids is the last straw. And that doesn't bode well for America. Well, that would have been a great stopping point if this was a lesson that could be broken up. Um, But we can't. (laughs) We can't because God is painting a picture in this chapter and the picture's just not done yet. Okay, so if you've had enough already, just pause the podcast. You can continue it later. That's fine. But whenever you're ready, we'll keep going. Let's start reading again at verse 23. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the, at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to, prov- to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this, you were not satisfied. So again, this language, it might sound pretty harsh. Um, you know, actually, it's <laughs> I, think, I think God's complaints are pretty fair. Uh, and if you thought it, you know, you heard the word whoring a lot there. I mean, it gets even more explicit in the original Hebrew. Um, I have to say, I'm glad that I don't have the job of a Bible translator. I feel like it's got to be rough sometimes, like just from my limited understanding of the of the different languages. So many words can have multiple meanings, multiple ways that they can be translated. And so the translators, they have to decide how to balance going with the literal meanings. And those can often be more confusing in our modern English. Uh, And sometimes they have to translate it thought for thought, which is many times clearer to us. But then it misses some of the nuances of the original. So this is the struggle that the Bible translators out there that they have to deal with. And you have to keep in mind also how seriously God takes his word. And so therefore, it's really important that you translate it accurately. So there's a lot of things for these translators to consider. And I try to be patient. Like I try to be understanding when I don't always understand why they translate things a certain way. I try to be patient with that because I know they have a harder job than I do. But despite all that, <laughs> I I don't really know how to defend how much they've toned down Ezekiel 16. Because the Hebrew, the, the original Hebrew is very clear. It's very sexual, but it's it's very clear. And yet, when they translate this stuff into modern English, they actually have really toned it down. So when it says that Israel, and again, exemplified by this adulterous woman, it says she built herself a lofty place in every square. But that phrase, a lofty place, it actually means a house of prostitution. So I don't know why they didn't just say that. I mean, it it would have been more clear, I think, and 
more accurate if they just called it what it, what it was. Then it says Israel offered, it says you offered yourself to anyone who passed by. And that's even nicer than the original, the actual Hebrew says she spread her legs for them as they passed by. So, it, you know, it's a little more explicit in the original Hebrew. And I guess the translators, maybe they're just too shy to be literal here. But I mean, I'm like, it's God's word. We got to, <laughs> we got to say what it, what it actually says. I mean, the meaning there is obvious. The lust of this woman in the story, it's being compared to the zeal that Israel had for other gods. Like she was going after them really hard. It it specifically mentioned a, a few nations that Israel played the harlot or cheated on God uh, with. It said Assyria and Egypt and the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, they're kind of a subset of the Babylonians. The next chapter of Ezekiel, it's going to go deep into that issue, like that Israel was more willing to trust in Egypt than they were with God. They made political alliances with Egypt when God wanted Israel to remain independent. Um, so we'll get into that next time. Egypt, one note on Egypt, though, it was described right here in the ESV as Israel's lustful neighbor. Now, that's in the in the Hebrew, it, it says that the Egyptians with huge organs, referring to male sexual organs. Um, it's a Hebrew word, basar, but it's a euphemism in the Hebrew for the phallus. OK, that, that, that's as much as I'm going to say today. Um Sorry to give you an anatomy lesson as we're studying the word of God. So these these biology lessons seem to come up from time to time in the book of Ezekiel. It says that she was going after these guys because they had huge organs. And again, this is this is metaphorical language just talking about how hard um Israel was going after these false gods. And so God said Israel ran after the other gods trusted in other countries to a shameful degree. So much that even it said even the other nations were looking at Israel and they were like, wow, you are you are really going overboard. So even the pagans were shocked at how pagan Israel had become. A few more verses here. Ezekiel 16, 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you give your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. So God says to them, you were like a prostitute, Except you didn't even want payment for your sexual services. You just wanted the sex. You didn't even care about getting anything else for it. So what does this mean? It means that Israel treated in the, the relationship and the covenant and the protection that she benefited from with God and treated it away for nothing. Just momentary pleasures. Nothing that offers longstanding benefits. Nothing of eternal value. It reminds me of what Jesus said about uh, like there's no point in gaining the whole world and yet losing your soul. There's no benefit to that. Like, what do you gain whenever you reject God? Like, maybe you say, well, I, I can't go to church every Sunday. I, I want to enjoy my weekends. That's my time. Guys, eternity matters too much to just want some extra time fishing or shopping on the weekends. Eternity matters too much to sleep in on Sundays. 
Like some people reject God because they they just want to keep control of their lives. They know that following God means you have to give up control of your life. You give up control of your money, give up control of your sex, give up control of your weekends. And a lot of people want to stay in control of those things. Those are idols for them. Just like Israel had idols and false gods. And the Bible said she was whoring herself out to them. And that could describe a lot of people today, too, with the idols that they have. You know, we don't call them idols, but it's the same principle. You whore yourself out to your bank account or your weekend fishing schedule. Maybe you quite literally whore yourself out and because you just want to do what you want to do. But a hundred years from now, what are you going to have to show for it? Only what's done for God will matter for eternity. Well, let's get into the last set of verses today. This is, this is going to be about Israel's sentencing. Ezekiel 16.35, it starts, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. So that's the sentencing of Israel right there. And it just kind of continues the thought that I was laying out a few moments ago. God's saying, what did it get you, Israel? You spurned God for a few momentary pleasures. And what did it benefit you in the end? Those things that you sacrificed your relationship with God for, they didn't help you. They didn't take care of you. Not only that, now you've burned your bridges with God. So now he's not helping you either. It started with Israel lying naked and bloody and abandoned in the wilderness. And then the story ends the same way. Israel is naked and bloody and abandoned in the wilderness. All the blessings God had given them were lost. All that they chased after didn't satisfy. That's the cycle of sin. Or maybe I should say the downward spiral of sin. The more Israel sinned, the more Israel increased its dedication to sin. And on and on it went. It just kept trying to dig its way out of the hole. But but you can't sin your way out of a sin hole. You just sin deeper. And <laughs> there's so many real world examples of this. It's like when our when our government gets in this inflationary cycle, it just keeps printing and spending more money to try to spend its way out of recession. When the unchecked spending is what caused the recession in the first place, <laughs> the government just repeatedly tries and fails to get out of these budget crises, drugs. Someone gets hooked on drugs, right? They start with small amounts until that's not enough. It doesn't give them the high anymore. They need a greater rush. They start going for greater doses, mixing it with other drugs. Eventually it kills them. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you want it to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to spend. 
That's what Israel was in. It was in this the sin spiral. And that spiral only goes down. The sentence God places is that you lose God's protection. You lose all these great things God had blessed you with. God says, I found you naked. I gave you clothes. You went naked again voluntarily. So now I'm taking the clothes back. God is divorcing Israel. Some cross-references for this would be Hosea chapters 1 through 3. It's where Hosea is told to marry an adulterous woman. Give her a chance at a pure, respectable, domestic life. And then she turns her back on Hosea and she cheats on him. And the beautiful thing about that story is, is like God tells Hosea to be willing to take her back if she returns to him. And I, I think she does. It's, it's kind of like in the story of the prodigal son. God is always willing to take a sinner back if they do return, if they do repent, if they don't die in that pig pen. God will forgive us whenever we truly come back. So this story, it has a personal application to each of us. But let's not forget the national application, too, because um, it was being applied here to the nation of Israel. But it's, you know, it's just hard for me to, to not see the parallels to our own nation as I read about what God was saying to Israel back then. Um, here in America, we've had this Christian background. We were so extremely blessed by God in the 20th century. Here we are today in the 21st century, and we're just sprinting as far away from God as fast as we can. Like we are sexually debasing ourselves. We're corrupting the children. The the I, When I say we, I mean, I hope we're saying them. I mean, I hope we're not, you know, I hope all of us listening and studying the Bible, <laughs> we're not the ones personally doing it. But I mean, it means as a nation, this is what we're doing. The story of Israel in Ezekiel 16, it could just be so perfectly, not perfectly, but I mean, in a lot of ways, it just lines right up with America. It could be applied to us right now. And, and honestly, it looks like we might be heading for a collapse or destruction just as Israel was. Like, I don't know if people realize sometimes it just might not even matter who the next president is. It might not matter who takes Congress in the next election. It might not matter how many constitutionalist judges they put on the Supreme Court. The country right now is just so divided and so broken. It's like, I don't know what it's going to take to pull it out of the downward spiral. We might be at the Ezekiel 16 stage in America, where God is just, just announcing his judgment. The individuals within America, they can still repent. But for America itself as a nation, it, it honestly, it might be too late. It was Thomas Jefferson himself who said, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. So another, another quote today. Before we go into our recap and our closing thoughts, uh, let, me, let me share this, these verses. It's from a singer named Graham Kendrick. And he was disturbed by the evils that he saw in this world, especially the evils that are perpetrated against children. And so he wrote a hymn. It's called, Who Can Sound the Depths of Sorrow?, and he uses a, a lot of terminology from this chapter in Ezekiel. Now, I'm going to share a few lines of it. I can't sing. I'm just going to read the lines. But I think the power of these words speak for themselves. Who can sound the depths of sorrow in the Father heart of God? For the children we've rejected. For the lives so deeply scarred. And each light that we've extinguished has brought darkness to our land. Upon our nation, upon our nation. 
Have mercy, Lord. We have scorned the truth you gave us. We have bowed to other lords. We have sacrificed the children on the altars of our gods. O let truth again shine on us. Let your holy fear descend upon our nation, upon our nation. Have mercy, Lord. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. And if you have a question on this chapter, just leave a comment or shoot us an email. Uh, Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take questions, subjects you want me to tackle in the future. If you have an idea, throw it out there. Um, I'm going to, I don't say this much, but please subscribe to the podcast because according to my analytics, most of the people who listen to the podcast are actually not subscribed. And so I never, I never tell you to subscribe. Maybe that's why uh, like, I don't want to be all like all these other podcasters who are constantly reminding their audience to subscribe like two or three times every show. Cause I think most people are capable of knowing if they want to hear more of a podcast, if they like it, they can subscribe to it. But anyway, our listenership episode by episode, uh, it's much higher than the subscriber count. So that tells me that most listeners have not subscribed yet. So I'll just say it. Go ahead and subscribe. Please do if you haven't already. Um, next time on the podcast, we'll continue the parable of the adulterous wife. Uh, we didn't finish it up today. We're about two thirds of the way through the chapter. Uh, so we'll finish up chapter 16 next time around. Then after that, I plan to take a break for a few weeks from the podcast. I'm I'm getting ready to move right now. By the time you listen to this, I should be done moving. But I'm going to need a few weeks to like get settled in at my new place before I jump back into recording. So look for me to take three or four weeks off after I finish up Ezekiel 16. I'm just going to try to get, um, I'm going to try to get Ezekiel 16 done before I move. So uh, make sure you're subscribed and then you will see those new episodes when they start to appear. And uh, also I have some mailbag things to get to. I am going to save them for next time. I've got like, I counted, I think I have nine. (laughs) <laughs> they've built up a lot and I really need to respond to them. Um, it's just, here's the thing. I, I've gotten more messages in the past month on for the podcast than like I have in the whole podcast life before. So um, I'm really excited to get to respond to those. I just knew I, this episode's just too long for me to do a mailbag segment right now. So I'm going to get to them next time. I, I have your messages and I want to try to respond to just about every single one. Thank you for the messages. Um, one of our recent episodes back in November, it was the most downloaded episode of all time. As I said, I'm recording this early December, but November was probably our best month ever on the podcast. So thanks to all of you who helped helped it take off with the likes and the shares, the ratings, the subscriptions. I really appreciate it. And I'll try to give some feedback to, to your feedback on the next episode. To recap this chapter, let me get into the recap. <laughs> we've got to wrap this up. This was a gnarly chapter, probably the most extreme chapter we've encountered so far in Ezekiel, even more extreme than the chapter about cooking a meal over poop. Okay. God told Ezekiel a story in this chapter. He used a metaphor of finding a baby abandoned in a field. This baby was covered in blood. It was just a newborn. It had been left to suffer and die, but God saved that baby. He gave it everything it needed. Over time, that baby grew up. God entered a marital relationship with the woman, but she turned on God 
She started cheating on him and using very explicit sexual language. It talked about how this woman lusted and just went after any man that she could. Sometimes the metaphor got even less subtle as it described how she had sexual relations with idols that had been fashioned with male body parts. Um, and, and all of this corresponded to adultery. Idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is cheating on God. Now, why couldn't God just say that? Like, why did God have to use such an explicit story to get this message across? Why couldn't this, this just, why couldn't it just be a PG rated chapter? Um, I like this quote. It's from the NIV application commentary. It's by Ian DeGuid. I think it gives a pretty good explanation of this. Uh, it's, let me see. Um, I'm just going to read a quote from it. One might illustrate the point by reference to the movie Schindler's List. This film depicted as fully as it could the ugliness of the concentration camps in World War II Germany. It merited the R-restricted rating, which it received, limiting it to adult audiences. Now, a portrayal of the same facts may perhaps have been made that would have only necessitated a PG, personal guidance suggested rating, by passing over some of the more gruesome de details. But the emotional impact of such a film would not have been nearly the same, for only in the details does the full depth of the horror emerge. Only in our rating portrayal does justice to the evils of Auschwitz. Similarly, sometimes only an R-rated sermon does justice to the outrage of sin. So I felt like, yeah, that kind of sums it up pretty well. This is why I've had to do, you know, an R-rated Sunday school, or I mean, a Bible study here. So um, hopefully we don't have it. The next one might be kind of R-rated too. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but <laughs> hopefully we don't have to do another one like that anytime soon. But um, if we're going to do justice to the Bible and to the, the topics the Bible is discussing, we got to get a little bit gnarly sometimes. If you were paying attention, we never did get to verse 43 today. And that's because I was saving it for the end here. I saved the concluding verse for the end because I think it caps off how to avoid this happening to any of us. Because I do take this chapter as not just a story about something that happened to another nation thousands of years ago on the other side of the world. But it's also a story that's warning you and I today. Don't turn your back on God. Don't get comfortable and say, well, I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer, so now I'm going to heaven no matter what I do. Well, that's kind of what Israel thought, and they were wrong. And many people can fall into that trap of thinking this today. It's still possible to turn your back on God's grace and the gospel. That God can save you and clean you up, give you a new life. And then you just go back to the pig pen of sin, like the prodigal son. And if you die in that pig pen, I, I, personally, I don't care that you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. Like, I have no confidence in your salvation if God saves you, and then you later choose to live such a wicked life that even the pagans are shocked at how pagan you are. I don't really care too much about that kind of testimony. So how do we take this warning seriously? and avoid turning our backs on God. Well, the message of this chapter is to be thankful. Ezekiel 16.43, Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? So Israel's overall problem, it was a lack of remembering a lack of gratitude, 
as I said earlier, um, I think around verse 22, I said Israel's gratitude for its salvation was supposed to translate into obedience today. Let me just say that again. Israel's gratitude for its salvation was supposed to translate into obedience today. Israel was supposed to remember what God had done for it and in gratitude faithfully served God and did what he said. But instead, they weren't thankful. They became prideful. They thought that their beauty was their own accomplishment. They thought their blessings were something that they achieved. And they took God's protection for granted. So, God removed all those things that he had blessed them with. And again, let's just apply these lessons to ourselves. Let's remember that we did not earn our own salvation or anything that God's given us. Remember that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Do you have some good things going on in your life? I'd say you probably do. There's always something to be thankful for. So remember that it comes from God. The devil didn't give you anything good. Give God the glory and and then do what God says. If you're a child of God, you are under God's protection. God takes care of you. Seek ye first his kingdom and he'll make sure that you have what you need. But if you seek your own kingdom, if you put other things before God, if you don't seek first his kingdom, but instead seek it third or fourth, you start to bring all kinds of problems upon yourself. God starts removing those blessings and protections that you've been enjoying. And that's a bad place to be. So just like Israel's gratitude for salvation was supposed to translate into obedience, the same should be true for us. Our gratitude for our salvation is supposed to make us want to be obedient to God as well. Good works don't save us, right? They don't contribute to our salvation, but they are a logical response to salvation. Like when I quoted Romans 12.1, it's our reasonable act of worship. We have to remember that the gospel says we did nothing to achieve God's blessing or salvation. We could contribute absolutely nothing to the work of Christ on the cross. It's all Jesus. When it came to getting into heaven, we could do just about as much as that baby in the field. In other words, we could do absolutely nothing for ourselves. We were as good as dead because we were dead in our sins. To quote from the NIV application commentary again, I just want to share this comment that was in the book. Like this, this comment that the book made, it was so shocking to me. It, like it just really made me think. Um, it says it politeness is not the only thing that holds us back in our understanding of Ezekiel 16. Because of the cultural distance between then and now, we are likely to react to its message in significantly different ways from Ezekiel's original message. They too would have been shocked by his graphic depiction of Jerusalem's depravity. But other aspects of the picture would have struck them differently from the way they strike us. For instance, here's where it gets really interesting to me. When we read of a passerby picking up an abandoned baby, it elicits no surprise in our minds. Our response is, of course he or she would rescue the baby and find someone to take care of it. What other choice is there? But in the ancient world, there was no of course about it. In those days, if you adopted every abandoned baby you found, your house would soon be bursting at the seams. It was an accepted tragedy. So as I... as I read that, I'm like, man, can you imagine the horror of walking down the road in ancient times 
and hearing a baby screaming somewhere out in a field. Someone had just abandoned it. Like if it was modern times, right? As the book said, of course we'd go help it. We'd take it to the hospital. We'd get it checked out. We'd wait for social services to come and, and then they would take custody of the baby. Then we'd go home. We'd pat ourselves on the back. We'd feel like we'd done a really good deed, right? But that wasn't the reality back in those days. There was no social services. There's no children's division. There's no government that cared about abandoned babies. If you heard a baby crying out in the field, in that moment, you had a choice to make. You either walked on or you went and got it and took it home with you and you raised it. And if you weren't willing to do that, I guess you just walked on. I mean, that's a, that's a horrifying position <laughs> to imagine yourself in. Am I going to go save that baby or am I just going to walk on and pretend I didn't hear anything and live my life and try to spend the rest of it just trying to forget about this moment? Right? Because as, as it said in the book, if you adopted every abandoned baby you found, your house would soon be bursting at the seams. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I'd go save the baby. That's the right thing to do. And I hope any of us would, honestly. But I bet most people wouldn't if that was the choice. They'd say, yeah, it's a tragedy what happened to that baby, but I wasn't the one who put it there. I can't do anything about it. I got problems of my own. I got my own family to take care of. I do other good things. And I'd be willing to bet that most people wouldn't have saved the baby. But I do know someone who did. God saved the baby. God saw the baby in the field and he said, I'm going to go clean it up and give it everything it needs and make it my problem. And you know what, guys? We're the baby. God could have walked right past us. God could have looked at you and looked at me. He could have said, oh, they're a mess. But they brought that on themselves. Because they chose to sin. They, they choose to sin every day. They're just awful people. I'm a holy God. I don't have to get down and taint myself with their filth. They can go to hell and I'll enjoy heaven. And you know what, guys? God could have said all that. God could have just stayed right up in heaven. Because heaven's good. And I'm not. So God never had to come down here and do anything for me. But God did come down. And he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. God came down. He cleaned me up at his own expense. And he gave me everything I needed. He redeemed me. He gave me a second chance. And just as this chapter of Ezekiel, it was ugly and messy to show the disgusting depravity of sin. But also Jesus came down and he died an ugly and messy death. Because... That's what it took. That's how bad my sins are. I was a helpless baby, dead in my sins, and I'm only redeemed today because of what God did by sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. And every good thing in my life is because of God. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you to be thankful. Thank you.